0: All right, we're beginning John 13 this morning. As we noted uh, last week, uh, his public ministry had come to a close, and uh, this kind of moves us into basically the upper room ministry and uh, then his uh, betrayal and death. So this is the, uh, the second act, so to speak, uh, in John's gospel. Um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. who said to him, Lord, why do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you indeed would grant us hearts to understand you, to understand your Son, and to understand your Word, to help us to also understand ourselves and the greatness of our need. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear of the greatness of your love for us in Christ Jesus, whom you sent as a propitiation for our sins. It is in his name we pray. Amen. When I'm at the gym, I usually make sure I position myself, whether on the elliptical trainer or on the treadmill right in front of ESPN. But occasionally ESPN has strange things on, and recently it was time for the National Spelling Bee. That's a sport, folks. (laughs) That falls, I guess, under the entertainment aspect of uh, ESPN. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching and, and, and spelling has never been my thing. I can't understand why anyone would want to spend hours looking at dictionaries, trying to figure out how to spell words. And I understand that there's a scholarship at the end of this process, but that is not enough for me to want to sit down with a dictionary and study these things. And so it's, it's interesting to me to watch how some of them spell things out in their hand if you haven't noticed. A lot of them use that technique. But it it makes me think of the, the accumulation of knowledge. All of us accumulate knowledge. Every single one of us. We may accumulate different knowledge and for different reasons, but we all accumulate knowledge. Why? For some, it's the glory. Because you want to be the guy who knows the answers to all of the questions. Perhaps, like me, one time you were caught not knowing an answer to a question. You were confused and you felt shame and you realized, I never want to feel that again. And so you began to kind of collect data for that moment when someone asks you a question. Glory or just the not feeling shame aspect. Some, like these children, they're accumulating knowledge for the purposes of gaining money. It might not be a scholarship, it might be a job. It might be uh, another prize for some sort of contest. Some gain, gain knowledge for wisdom. Some for love. So that they might love another person. But we all seek to gain knowledge. And the point is that we then do something with that knowledge. What we're going to see as we look at this is that Jesus gains knowledge or has knowledge. He doesn't gain it, but he, in this text he has certain knowledge and he utilizes that knowledge not for himself, but for other people. It's a very interesting text that we have this morning. The big idea is that Jesus' love resulted in selfless service. But one of the themes that runs through this is knowledge. Those verbs, Jesus knew, Jesus knew, Jesus knew, keep appearing in this text. And so, what Jesus knew is what freed him to love. Now, this starts with a very vague time reference. Now, before the feast of the Passover. Now, we know it's that last week. Okay. But this phrase has caused lots of discussion and debate as to the timing not only of this dinner, is this the Last Supper? And that he, he leaves out the, uh, beginning, the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. Or is this a different meal? There's those kinds of questions. And then, of course, there are the questions of when did Jesus die? Which some people have a difference of opinion. Some people think Thursday night. Some people think Friday night. Or not Friday night, but Friday. Differences of opinion. We're not going to get into that. That was sort of missing the point at this point. Jesus knew. Jesus' knowledge is the focus of what we find here and in verse 3. And the point of this knowledge is that it's going to lead into action. He's not gaining knowledge or having knowledge for its own sake, but it leads to action on the part of Jesus. And the first thing that we see Jesus knew is that his hour had come. And we've seen that phrase before, this idea of his hour, and it points to his death. And so this saying is, Jesus knew... That his his death had come. The time had arrived. Not that moment, but it was happening. It had arrived. It was time for him, as it says in this text, to depart the world, to depart creation, and to return to the Father. And so we see that as we begin this discussion of, of what's going on here, the cross continues to cast its shadow upon everything Jesus does and the events that that continue up until the cross. The shadow of the cross is always going to be there. I remember when I decided to leave New Hampshire and uh, go to Florida. Still not sure why I went to Florida. I did not know what I was getting myself into when I moved to Florida. But every encounter with friends seemed to be There was a shadow cast upon it of, I'm leaving. I don't know if I'm ever coming back or when I'm coming back. And so there were all of these goodbyes. That's how Jesus is sort of experiencing. This is it. It is time for me to say goodbye, in a sense, to these men who have been following me for up to three years. It says that... Because he knew his hour had come, having loved his own who were in the world. Again, this idea that Jesus had loved them up to this point. He didn't start loving them because he was about to depart, but he had loved them all along. However, that idea of in the world. He loved them though they were in the world. He loved them where we are, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of sin, in the midst of misery. He loved them, but it also says he loved them to the end, or as the NIV puts it the old NIV to the uttermost, and so there's a there's a a little bit of uncertainty as to how best to understand that. Is he loving them even up to the end? Is he loving them to its goal, which is one understanding of telos, the the Greek word that is there, or is he loving them to the full measure, the maturity of his love? It's all three, actually, I think because he did love them even to the very last moment of his life on earth. He did uh, love them uh, with a goal in mind, which was the salvation of their souls. And he did love them completely with everything that he had. He loved them to the end. He also knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. And so he knew that he was in control. There are a number of circumstances that are about to happen and they're not going to go well for Jesus, but he knew that he was in control of them. It was not Satan. It was not Judas. It was not Pontius Pilate. It was not King Herod. It was not any of those people. It was Jesus himself who's in control of all of these situations. These things had been placed into his hands by the Father. He has no fear. What is going to happen to him is frightening, but he has no fear as he encounters them. Not only did he know that the Father had given all of these things into his hands, but he knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. It's obvious as we've gone through out this gospel already how many times he talks about how he has sent and he talks about the one who sent him and he's talking about the father and this is just again affirming this he knew this he understood it and it shaped how he acted it was not just a bit of trivia for him but it freed him he didn't have to worry about making a name for himself he didn't have to worry about gaining his own glory all he had to do was what the father told him to do he was free because of the knowledge that he had. He knew who he was. He know, he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. Now you could ask me who I am and I might be able to give you a fairly decent answer. I could tell you where I've come from. Andover, Mass. Nashua, New Hampshire couple places in Florida. Now I'm here. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I don't know if this is the last place I'll ever live or not. I have no idea. But I know that in God's providence, I will be going to Chattanooga, Tennessee tomorrow. Um, but beyond that, I really don't know. Okay? But Jesus knew these things. And because he had this sense, this security, and who he was, he was able to love his disciples in a way that they viewed as scandalous because Jesus did not cling to his deity, or sorry, his dignity. He did cling to his deity. But he freely loved them in what is, in a sense, a very scandalous sort of way. When we read earlier from Philippians 2, we see that Jesus took the form of a slave. And that is very apparent here. Because what he is going to do is something only a Gentile slave would do. A Jewish man could not force a Jewish slave to wash his feet. It was considered to be beneath the dignity of a fellow Jew to wash the feet of another Jew. A Gentile could do it, but, you know, they're dogs, right? Jesus is going to voluntarily take the place of a Gentile slave in washing the feet of his disciples. It's scandalous, to them. We don't think of it this way, generally speaking. Uh, back when I was still in New Hampshire, and uh, I was uh, doing some volunteer youth ministry, one of the kids in my group who had recently become a Christian, well, his family was moving away. And I was in that part of, uh, of the Old Testament where they kept, every time something, you know, God did something, they built a monument, you know, they thought, build an altar of rocks. So I was, let's build an altar, so to speak. So, we had a foot washing service. Because I wanted this young man to remember this community in which he had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we built this kind of altar. And in some sense, it was, if you've never washed other people's feet, um, it's a little different. Okay? But everyone lived. No one died in the process of washing the feet. We actually had a little fun with it. Um, but for the disciples, this was unthinkable. Jesus' knowledge and love met to produce loving acts that no one expected. Secondly, Jesus must wash us to ha- for us to have fellowship with him. You see, Peter's doing what Peter always does, and that is expressing verbally what everyone else is thinking but is afraid to say. Okay, uh, Peter is the one who doesn't have that governor over his mouth um, yet. It would come. So he just kind of blurts out what probably everyone was thinking when he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the reason I stress you and my is the way that they are placed in the original to for emphasis. How is it that you Wash my feet. If anyone's to be washing feet, I should be washing your feet because you're the rabbi, you're the teacher, and I am the disciple. But Peter's not really offering to wash Jesus' feet. Remember that this is a stratified society. You do not do what is beneath you. Jesus has it all upside down, okay? But Jesus wants Peter to trust him. He says, you're not going to understand this now, okay. but later. And in a sense, Peter, we are so much like Peter. Don't you want to understand what God is doing in your life now? I mean, not understand it, Ten years from now, but understand it now. We're just like him. We're we get frustrated with God sometimes because he's not telling us what he's really doing, particularly. Now, of course, we know he's making us like Jesus, but you know what particular way in which he's making us like Jesus. And so, like Peter, we can sort of struggle. With trusting Jesus as He works in our life. And then Jesus and Paul uh, yeah, Peter that's the guy makes one of these statements, "You will never wash my feet." He does not, I think, on the one hand, want Jesus to disgrace himself by playing the part of a slave. But as I think about this and I think about my own life, hopefully I'm not committing eisegesis here, okay? But sometimes we don't want Jesus getting involved in the messy, dirty part of our lives. As though he's holy and he shouldn't come in contact with those parts of our lives that are made messy by life, right? Let's remember, unlike you, they're not wearing nice shoes, okay? Uh, I usually wear sneakers. It's Sunday. I got my Sunday shoes on, okay? It's like the only day of the week I wear them, okay? But they wear sandals. There's no paved roads. There are no cars, but there are lots of animals. (laughs) And so walking in the streets of ancient Israel could be a very messy affair, and they didn't want Jesus to deal with that mess that was on their feet. okay. And so I, I think sometimes we sort of have lists. Here's the list of sins I want Jesus to deal with. okay. But here's another list of sins that I try to deal with myself, but I don't really want to bring to Jesus. I think that maybe I've got to handle these sins on my own. Jack Miller writes, Christ is in the business of meeting your need, but you may have to discover that your need is much greater than you ever imagined. That's what Peter, I think, is in the process of understanding. Jesus speaks back to Peter. He responds to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so, in other words, What Jesus is doing was not optional for his relationship with Peter. If Peter was to have fellowship with Jesus, he must be washed. It's a condition for this. Now, let's not think that this means that you have to have a feet-washing ceremony in order to be a Christian. That's not where I'm going, and I don't think that's where Jesus is going with this. But this points, I think, to the cleansing that we all need because of the pollution of sin. With the water, it makes us think, this is not to be directly tied to baptism, but it points to the same way as baptism points to the cleansing of our hearts uh, from sin and idolatry because of the work of Jesus. It's hard not to think of things like Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. He's saying, Peter, I have to cleanse you if you're going to be my disciple. It's similar to what we see in Ephesians 5 when when Christ It says, uh, he might sanctify her, referring to the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so there's an element here that for the sinless one to have fellowship with sinners such as us, somebody must change. And that somebody is us. But it's not that we change ourselves it is that he changes us he washes us clean with his own blood we see this longing in in david's life in psalm 51 don't we cleanse me he says wash me take the hyssop and, and make me clean he had a longing he knew the pollution of sin on his soul and he longed to be made whole and clean make me a clean heart Oh God, that's the same thing that I believe is being expressed here in John 13. Jesus is just talking about it. This needs to happen. You need to experience this. The water of regeneration, so to speak. In order to have a share in Jesus, there's the initial cleansing that takes place through regeneration as it's talked about In Titus chapter 2. And so all of our sins must come before him because he needs to cleanse us of them all. We cannot cleanse them ourselves. You see, it's like silver. What can you use to clean tarnished silver? Just one thing. You can get soap and water, and scrub to your heart's delight, and it's not going to get clean. You need to have silver cleaner. You can get the borax scrubber, you know, one of those little scrubby things with all this. Work hard. Work up a sweat. Work for days. Not going to happen. Similarly, we can try all kinds of things to deal with our sin and nothing will deal with them. There's only one solution to the stains upon our souls and that is the blood of Christ shed for sinners. Received by faith. That's it. That's all. The bloody cross is the only cure for the sin-sick heart. Now, Jesus continues because he says that the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And the idea here is, of course, they're at a party. They presumably have bathed. They are clean, but remember, they bathed at home. So they're, most, they're clean when they leave the house, but of course, when you walk in dusty old Palestine, uh, what's bound to happen is your feet are going to get dirty and you might step in a few things because you were talking to the guy next to you and you didn't notice the stuff that was in the road because the donkey had been there a little bit before. Okay? They didn't need to be completely cleaned. They just needed their feet cleaned. And so I think this points us to that fact that when we're a Christian... Every time we sin, we're not re-justified. It's not like we lose our salvation and we become completely filthy. It's just our feet need to be cleaned. That's the parallel. Peter had to remember that it was not everything that needed to be cleaned because Jesus had already done that, so to speak. Okay? His, the effectiveness of his cross went backwards in time, too. That's what really cleaned David. That's what cleaned Abraham, because it was as good as done okay, in the providence of God. So when Peter goes, wash all of me, wash my hands, wash my head, no, you only need your feet washed. Christians, when you sin, you just need your feet washed. You don't need to come to Jesus all over again. You just need to confess your sins and ask forgiveness. This is exactly what we see in 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Okay, This is a present tense kind of thing. It's something that was continuing to happen. We're in the light. We've already turned away from the darkness. We've been, we've been saved by Christ, but we still sin. And we still get cleansed. And it's still... The blood of Christ. Not, well, a conversion you're saved by the blood of Christ, but later on it's something else. It's always, only the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our guilt, that removes our shame. So fellowship with Jesus begins and continues by the cleansing of our sin by his blood. Thirdly, Jesus didn't let betrayal suffocate service because Jesus knew something else. Jesus knew who was to betray him. Jesus knew that though Judas was with him, Judas had no share in him. The death of Jesus, as we noted, was in his own hands. We see in Acts 2, this is reiterated, and that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God was in control, the Father and the Son, not the wicked men who put Jesus to death. But Jesus also knew this, that Satan, or here the devil, Diablos, which means accuser, the accuser had already been at work in Judas's heart prior to this, moving him to betray Jesus. Usually when we think of the accuser, we think of him accusing us, and that happens. He brings up our sins that Christ has already taken care of, uh, as though, you know, to steal the joy of our salvation and to, uh, to cripple us with a sense of condemnation and false guilt and shame and these kinds of things. That's what we normally think of, and that's what he does a lot of, don't worry. But he also accuses other people to us. That's what he was doing in Judas's life. He was accusing Jesus to Judas. Look what a failure he is. Oh, he he says he's the king. Has he taken up a sword? Look at this impotent king that you want to follow. Anything like that. The accuser is accusing Jesus to tempt Judas to betray him. He's doing what he's always done. We see this in the Garden of Eden. What were those words? Did God really say? Getting them to question the goodness of God. Adam and Eve were experienced, the accuser accusing God of withholding good things from them. That was part of his work, not all of his work, in the Garden of Eden. Satan probably appealed to Judas's pride and his fear. You deserve a better Messiah, Judas. Judas, you'll not get the position that you deserve if you follow Jesus. Just like he did to Eve, just like he did to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. See? False accusations. For those of you who enjoy Star Wars, Volume 3, Episode 3, sorry. Revenge of the Sith. That's all that the Sith Lord did. He was the accuser. He comes alongside of Anakin Skywalker and what he does is appeal to his pride. You deserve better than that. You deserve to be higher, more you know, elevated within the Jedi. You don't need to listen to Obi-Wan Kenobi. He appears, appeals to his fear that he'll not be able to get the justice he craves as long as he continues to follow the good side of the force. All of this false accusation is how Obi-Wan is keeping you down. Sometimes it's easier for us to see it in a movie such as that. And that's what happened. Now, here's the reality. He hasn't stopped doing this. He will accuse others to you. He will appeal to your pride. He will appear to appeal to your fear in an effort to destroy the relationships that you have, the fellowship that you enjoy within the body of Christ. And sometimes someone has actually sinned against you, but instead of directing you, obviously, to the work of Christ on behalf of that person, he's going to accuse so that you condemn too, that you join him in condemning that person instead of offering them grace because you have received grace. That's one way in which he destroys fellowships. We must be careful. That's one of the things that bitterness produces, the destruction of a fellowship. Because we're holding people's sins against them instead of releasing them as our sins have been released in Jesus Christ. This does not mean that that Judas was scot-free, that it was only Satan's fault. We recognize that each person, as it says in James 1, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so, you know, Judas had these desires in his heart that were sinful desires, and yet we see the criticism of Jesus The sinful criticism of Jesus by Judas amplified and taken in a completely different direction to betray him, not just to walk away from him, but to sell him for money. That, I think, was largely the satanic contribution of that. Why am I talking about this? Think about how hard it is to serve someone who's hurt you, who's betrayed you. Think about that. What happens if someone in church has sinned against you and maybe they haven't repented yet and you haven't been reconciled yet? What do you do? Do you rush to serve them or do you tend to stay on the other side of the sanctuary? Oh, wait a minute, they're getting a snack now. I guess I'll find someone over here to talk to. That's what happens, most likely. Jesus knew he was being betrayed. But instead of running away from Judas, he washed his feet. He served Judas. Now, this tells us a couple things. Okay, This saves us from a sacramental theology that means, uh, well, like a Roman Catholic sacramental theology, okay? being being washed didn't mean that Judas, Judas was cleansed. he was still in his sin, okay because there was no faith, all right? The sacrament has to be met with faith to receive that which the sacraments point to, right? His feet were washed, but as Jesus says, not all of you are clean. Judas remained in his sins. Simply being baptized does not cleanse us. We must be united to Christ who loved us by faith. Jesus didn't let the sin of Judas... Well, He didn't let the sin of All of the disciples get in his way. He freely loved all of them. He loved most of them savingly unto their salvation. But even though he knew he was not going to save Judas, he still loved him in this way. He still washed his feet. When people like me would probably want to run the other way, I'm not helping that guy. Are you kidding me? Oh, how we need Jesus. Knowledge. Jesus used his knowledge for good, to serve his disciples in love. Even though all of them were undeserving of that love, the washing of their feet points us to Christ's death on the cross to save sinners. Our cleansing from sin is based solely on his death in our place. And we need this precisely because we're too much like Judas. Judas, who used his knowledge for evil. Self-centered, Judas didn't come to Christ for cleansing, but instead betrayed Judas for money. And just like Judas, we are prone to put ourselves before Jesus, and therefore, we need to come to that fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins to wash all our sin away. Let's pray. Father, this passage is intended for us to see how much we need Jesus and how willing he is to deliver us. Thank you for this text. And as we struggle with our sin and our fear and our pride, we ask that this would be one of those texts texts that reminds us that it is your mercy that is intended to lead us to repentance. That if we come to him, we will find a Savior there. And so may you work by your Spirit, Even, even we who are Christians, when we sin, help us not to run away, but to remember he's more than willing to continue to wash our feet instead of casting us out. And we ask this in his name. Amen.